me to Luke's Gospel. This morning, we began a series through Luke's Gospel. We're going to be here uh, for a while. So, settle in. You can be found on page 1030 in your Pew Bible. And this morning, we're going to look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, you'll see on the screen in front of you, uh, sort of the heading, the introduction. You'll also see in a few moments an outline. That outline can also be found on page 5 in your bulletin. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Uh, Father, now we pause for these few moments and we give attention to your word. We pray your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word this day. Father, not just that we would learn something maybe that we didn't know before, but that we would see the wonder and glory and majesty of the gospel in a new way. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of us who are old enough to be of a certain age on 9-11 can tell you exactly where we were and what we were doing that particular morning. We watched in real time as massive planes flew even into even more massive buildings. We saw the towers come down with our own eyes as stunned news anchors sat silent, unable to speak. We knew what we had seen. We knew we were being attacked. We knew something particular was happening, but we didn't necessarily understand the significance of it in that moment. We didn't know who did it. We didn't know why they did it. We didn't understand what it all meant. That particular morning was a Tuesday. I was in uh, the office in the church I served at the time. Uh, we had every Tuesday morning, we would go visit shut-ins. And that particular morning, Amy and Gabrielle were going to come. and We were going to go out together and visit some shut-ins. And I got a phone call from a lady who was a member of our church saying, Pastor, I think everything in the book of Revelation is happening today. She knew something was happening, but didn't understand the significance of it. Well, friends, as we begin this morning in the book of Luke, we need to understand that the book of Luke does for us what we wish someone could have done on 9-11. Luke takes the single most significant life in the history of the cosmos, and he tells us why that life matters so very much. Luke introduces us to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us why Jesus matters. 
Now, in, in your bulletin on page five, as you look at the outline and on the screen in front of you, you see something there called the big idea. The big idea in one sentence is what the sermon is about. And here it is for this morning. We must take Luke's motivation and purpose seriously as we read his book. We must take Luke's motivation and purpose seriously as we read his book. First, then, let's understand in terms of Luke's motivation that he's a man of good faith. He is a man of good faith. It's possible to come to Luke's gospel and read it with an air of skepticism. It's possible to come to Luke's gospel and read it with what scholars call a hermeneutic of suspicion. After all, we've been told over the past 40 years or so that anytime someone writes a narrative or anytime someone tries to give us something that they say is really significant and important, what's really going on is that individual is simply trying to take power from us. That all these exercises in storytelling, all these exercises in writing meaningful narrative, any attempt to try to help us understand or explain life It's really just a grab for power. Maybe we don't view it that way. Maybe we view it typically more as sort of quintessential American consumers. We come to any text, any story, and we wonder exactly what it is that they're trying to sell us. There's a catch. They're trying to sell me something. I'm just not sure what it is. Now, if we're not careful, we could read Luke's gospel and think, well, Luke has this thing called eternal life. He has this thing called the gospel, and he's trying to sell it to you. Or Luke's trying to give his story in such a way so that you move out of the driver's seat and this guy named Jesus takes control. But it's really, it's, it's, all, it's just kind of a, a very well-told power grab. But friends, as we come to Luke's gospel We need to take Luke at his word. He's not trying to take power from us. And he's not trying to tell us something. Or he's not trying to sell us something. Though he is trying to tell us something. So we need to sort of tamp down the impulse to automatically be suspicious of what it is that he's telling us. We need to understand his motivation. Well, he tells us in the first three verses what his motivation actually is. He's going to take in hand, literally undertaken, he's going to take in hand to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, that phrase, accomplished among us, literally means uh, that it's, it's something that have things that have already been told. And he's, he's telling us that he's going to give us these things in a narrative. And so if we're going to read Luke well, we need to read Luke appropriately. We need to understand, first of all, that he's used different sources. He's saying many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Luke's work is a compilation. We're going to see that in just a moment that Luke has talked to different people, that Luke has read, we think, Mark's gospel. There was another interesting document out there called, scholars call Q. 
And it was some of these collected writings and sayings and events in the life of Jesus. And so Luke is taking from eyewitnesses. Luke is taking from these other written documents and he's compiling them. In other words, he's making a playlist for us. And the way that he's going to compile the playlist is he's going to tell us a story. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been in 1 John. 1 John is an epistle. We don't read epistles like we read a narrative. In narratives, we pay attention to the characters. We pay attention to the plot. We pay attention to the setting of these things. We pay attention to when someone is speaking. All these things help us to understand what it is that Luke is trying to communicate because Luke is telling us a story. But here's what we need to remember. How Luke tells the story is the key to understanding it. Let me say that again. How Luke tells the story is the key to understanding the story that he's telling us. Now, this is not a story that Luke just made up on his own. He tells us that he's compiled a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. In the old King James Version, it reads literally, those things which have been fulfilled. Luke doesn't think that the story of Jesus came out of nowhere. Rather, he understands that this is the fulfillment of all that God has promised to do through his coming Messiah. But here's the catch. Luke is not writing to a group of people who necessarily uh, have any kind of historical background with the Messiah. We note that he's writing to a man he calls Theophilus. Now, we don't know if Theophilus was a ruler of some kind or if he was a wealthy individual. We don't know if he was someone of particular significance. But here's what we do know. Theophilus is a Greek name. So Luke is writing to a group of Gentile converts. This is not a gospel primarily aimed at helping to convince Jews that this man named Jesus is actually the Messiah. That's Matthew's gospel. But he does want those of us who would have no background in the Old Testament, those of us who are Gentiles, to understand that Jesus coming into the world is actually the fulfillment of everything that God has done in the Old Testament. Testament. And so using particularly the book of the Psalms, using particularly the prophecy of Isaiah, Luke is going to tell us the story of God's Son coming into the world. That's why we read Psalm 2 this morning. It's interesting in Psalm 2, right there in the middle, basically verses 7 to 9, you have the whole story of Jesus' life. God sent his son into the world. He put his king on his holy hill. He tells everyone who will pay attention, you are my son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth of the earth your possession. He even tells us what's going to happen when Christ returns. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These are all things that God has done, is doing, and will do. And he does them all through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let's understand. Luke didn't sit down and talk to eyewitnesses. He didn't look at these other things and go, you know what? Let's just make up something new. No, Luke is concerned at every step to help us understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the redemptive work and all the redemptive promises of God. Or as Paul puts it, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we read Luke, we read Luke understanding that all of the Old Testament is his backdrop. Thirdly, or C, we need to trust the eyewitnesses. Luke tells us that he sat down with those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, and they have delivered all of these things to, to him and to us. <coughs> now, what's interesting is that when, when, um, when Luke speaks of his eyewitnesses, he uses eyewitnesses we're pretty sure that other folks did not. For example, right after he gets done with his introduction, he tells us about the birth of John the Baptist. He then goes on and tells us about how it is that the angel Gabriel is sent to uh, this young maiden named Mary. He tells us of what happens when the child in Elizabeth's womb uh, is confronted with the child who is in Mary's womb and what happens there. Now, ask yourself this question. Who did Luke have to talk to to get the story of Mary's conversation with Gabriel? He had to talk to Mary. He didn't just talk to the apostles. We know from the book of Acts that Luke was a constant traveling companion with the apostle Paul. Luke was not one of the original disciples. He's a Gentile convert, and as Paul calls him, the beloved physician. Luke himself was not one of the folks who was following Jesus around Galilee. Luke was not present when Christ was betrayed and suffered and died. Luke was not one of the ones to whom Christ appeared in the upper room. But he talks to people who were. He goes to the eyewitnesses and he gets them to tell their story. How else does he know what Gabriel says to Mary? How else does he know about the conversation between Mary and Elizabeth? How else does he know what Simeon and Anna do when the infant child Jesus is presented in the temple. Now, friends, let's understand something. If you were going to write something in the first century to try to convince folks of something and you wanted credible eyewitnesses to do it, you would not choose women. And yet, right off the bat, who does he include? A woman. He's telling Mary's story for us. Lots of uh, surveys of the book of Luke or lots of surveys of the New Testament will say that Luke is the gospel for the poor. We're going to see there is an emphasis on those who uh, are not materially wealthy. Now, to be clear, that doesn't really do us any good because uh, an American on food stamps, an American on government assistance or living on welfare is still in the top 10% of the most wealthiest people in the entire world. So when we read 
this is good news to the poor and you're a middle-class American, you're not the poor that he has in mind. So while this is not necessarily the gospel for the poor, what I think it is, is it is the gospel for everybody. Women in this day and time were considered to be not really people. They were property. And they weren't animals. They were better than slaves. But they weren't quite people. We're going to see Luke borrows not only, or he takes not only from Mary, but there are other female eyewitnesses that he uses. How else do we know who goes to the tomb? How else do we know who is present when Christ is crucified? Friends, we can trust the eyewitnesses because the eyewitnesses are people who have no power. Therefore, it cannot be a power play. They are simply telling the truth. They are recounting for us the things that God has accomplished, the things that God has done through Christ. Fourthly, then, if we're going to read Luke well, we need to find the structure. We need to find the structure. He writes in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now that phrase, orderly account, is an interesting one. It's a medical term. It's the Greek word from which we get our term autopsy. So here's what Luke is doing. Luke is looking at all of these things, and he's going to give us a particular account. He's going to give us a well-ordered, a clear, clearly structured account of all the things that have happened. But let's understand that as Luke shapes his story, his great concern is not chronology, but theology. If we go to Luke going, okay, well, in the first year of Jesus' ministry, this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened, and we try to read it all in sort of a straight timeline, that's not how Luke is writing. Luke is writing with particular themes in mind. And Luke tends to bunch together stories that are all variations on the same theme. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 1, but turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 includes for us one of the most well-known parables of the entire scripture. The parable of the prodigal son. But as we're going to see, the parable of the prodigal son is simply the lengthy end of one parable. And he's telling that parable for a particular reason. Look at Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all, were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So again, we're saying Luke is the gospel for everybody, including sinners and tax collectors. Because by the way, tax collectors were very much considered to be not people. And their testimony was absolutely not allowed in a court of law. Because they were trying to sell you something and they were trying to take from you and steal from you. So, 
the good religious folks, verse 2, grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How does Jesus respond? Verse 3, he told them this parable. It doesn't say he told them three parables. He told them one parable. It's a parable that includes lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Do you see what he's doing? He's grouping his parables together around a particular theme. The occasion is the Pharisees saying, hey, wait a minute. All these sinners are hanging out with this guy and he claims to be a godly man. And Luke says, yes, he is because the gospel is for everybody. And now hear this parable that Jesus tells them. There are lost sheep, there is a lost coin, and there is a lost boy. And the good news is that what is lost has now been found, and so we should celebrate and be glad. Friends, that's the kind of structure John's going to use. He doesn't just jump higgledy-piggledy from story to story. No. He has particular themes that he wants to focus on. He has particular themes that he wants to make sure we understand what the person and work of Jesus Christ means, really as we focus on those particular themes. So as we go through, don't be worried about, oh, this is, this is year one of Jesus' life. This is year two. No, that's not. He's not writing a history. He's writing an ordered narrative account. And the organizing theme for Luke is not chronology, it's theology. He has particular themes that he wants us to understand, themes that he wants us to look at. Well, that's his motivation What's his purpose? Turn back with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, and let's look at verse 4. So he's told us about the motivation, that he's talked to all these folks, he's written this narrative, he's talked to eyewitnesses, and he has the entire Old Testament as his backdrop. And then he tells us in verse 4, in order that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been We've talked about his motivation. Now he gets to his purpose. Luke wants Theophilus, and by extension us, to experience a particular kind of certainty. Now it's interesting, that word certainty in two other places in the New Testament is actually translated as safety. He wants us to be safe in the gospel that he is presenting us. Uh, some of you, if you grew up in, a, in an Anglican tradition or in a more liturgical tradition, you may be aware of the fact that in the gospel writings, uh, there were different animals that were equated with, or different figures that were equated with each of the gospels. So, for example, uh, the symbol for Matthew was a man, because Matthew is trying to convince us that Jesus is indeed this coming Davidic Messiah, and so he wants us to know that this is the Son of God. He is uh, the man. He is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. The symbol for Mark is a lion. 
makes sense, right? Because Mark is always moving from like story to story and it's fast and it's quick. And he always has these little sandwiches in which he's telling us. And then it's always, and then immediately he went to, Mark is moving all the time. And so it's very appropriate that the symbol for Mark is a lion. John's symbol is an eagle. When you start with what's going on in eternity past, and you soar to all the heights that John's gospel does, you understand why it would be thought of as an eagle. But I wonder this morning, do you know what the symbol is for Luke's gospel? It's an ox. It's an ox. Now, uh, oxen aren't near as exciting as lions or eagles. If you grew up watching Wild Kingdom, you know that the purpose of an ox, especially out in the wild, is to be eaten by really cool animals like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, right? Why? Why would he choose an ox? Well, remember, in the ancient world, the ox was the steady beast of burden. An ox was reliable. An ox was dependable. An ox was the kind of uh, sport utility vehicle for every man. It could do it all. An ox could pull your cart. An ox could pull your plow. An ox could remove stumps. Fantastic animals. And they were steady. There was safety in an ox. Well, John tells Theophilus he wants him to be certain that he wants him to possess safety concerning the things in which he has been taught. So I wonder this morning, as you think about your own grasp of the gospel, or as you think about your own grasp of, for lack of a better term, religious things, As you think about your grasp of the things that you have been taught, how certain are you? Do you come to the text with a kind of hermeneutic of suspicion? Well, yes, that might have been true for them. Don't know that it's true for me. After all, they didn't have cars. They didn't even have penicillin. Or so much smarter, so much better, so much more advanced? Or do you come to the text with a sense of certainty? Do you come to the text understanding that Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat down with people who had been there, they had seen it. And now he's writing, not because he's trying to gain power over you and not because he's trying to sell you anything. But Luke is writing to you because he wants you to be safe in the gospel that he's declaring. This morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we are also declaring what God has done in Christ. We are declaring when we come to the table that his body was broken not for his own trespasses, but for ours. We are declaring that Christ's blood was shed. Again, not for any transgression that he committed, but he did so for us, for our sake. 
And so when we come to the table this morning, we're reminded why Luke's gospel matters. Friends, the gospel is where we are safe. The truth of what Luke is telling us is where we can be certain. Everything else is changing. Everything else is higgledy-piggledy. I was talking with Larry this morning before church, and he let me know that we're anticipating our utilities will go up 80% this year. Larry has the gift of encouragement for his pastor before we come on a Sunday morning. But that's not where our certainty is, is it? And that's not where our safety is. This morning, we invite you to come to the table as we declare all that God has done for us in and through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy not uh, to trust. It is so easy to feel a sense of skepticism and a sense of anxiety when we come to your word. And yet, Father, we thank you that you're not trying to fool us. You're not trying to confound us. You're not trying to uh, leave us in a state of anxious worry. But rather, in writing this gospel, Luke wants us to be safe. He wants us to have certainty. He wants us to know of all that you have done through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how you have accomplished everything that you have purposed to do. We bless you for that. And we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.